This morning's Bible reading is from the New Testament, from Paul's letter to the Philippians. We'll be reading from chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. So Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. And this passage is entitled, No Confidence in the Flesh. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jen. <coughs> no, I don't need that. Give that to Brendan. Morning, everyone. In that passage that Jenny read to us so well, it talks about the Apostle Paul's personal testimony of how he was a... Hebrew of Hebrews. His parents were Hebrews. His grandparents were Jewish people. He was a Hebrew born of Hebrews. As to the law, he was faultless, he said. He kept all of God's laws and regulations that were required of a Jewish person, so he thought. And then it was through, in terms of his zeal, he said he was even persecuting the church. He was persecuting people who were, he thought were opposed to God's law, <clears throat> the church, the early Christians. And then the Apostle Paul encountered and met the Lord Jesus himself, saw him in his resurrected state, changed his life and turned it around completely. Having seen the resurrected Christ, he came to discover the purpose of Jesus' resurrection was in fact his death, that Jesus died on the cross, that all of the Old Testament law and sacrifices and all of the symbols and types and prophecies and everything else pointed forward to Jesus' coming. And the penny dropped for the Apostle Paul and the scales fell from his eyes and he came to see and understand. It's not about being religious. <clears throat> and he was very good at that. It's about being in right relationship with God through Jesus. We're in a series in the book of Exodus. 
And we, uh, sweetheart, I left the control over there. Could you give me the control back, please? This is very symbolic, everybody. She will get it straight after the service, I am sure. Thank you, sweetheart. We're in a series in the book of Exodus, and I want to read to you um, <clears throat> this morning. We're looking at chapters 25 to 27. The remaining parts of the book of Exodus are one of, for many people, the boring bits. <clears throat> Talks about, as you'll see in a moment, about very specific instructions on how to build a tabernacle, a huge tent, and how to make furniture and size, shape, dimensions, all sorts of specific details about it. And then there is an interlude where the people of Israel sin and the golden calf, we'll come to that in a couple of weeks. And then it's the actual repeating of these instructions in the actual construction of the temple. God took six days to make the world, one chapter, book of Genesis. Gives 16 chapters to the construction of the tabernacle. Sort of emphasizes there's something to learn here. And I wanted to say before I read God's word, uh, this morning we are dumping, dumping, we're jumping in the deep end. This is pretty deep spiritual truth that you will find yourself wading in and it's, you won't touch bottom. And it's, we're going to sort of go across the surface of it a little bit this morning to give you a taste for it, but I encourage you to prayerfully read this portion of God's word. You will not understand it straight away. I've read it, as many of you have, numerous times. And every time you read it, you see something new. You see something extra. You notice something. It's a bit like that. So let me read to you from God's Word. We'll read just chapter 25. And if, can, if you can bring up, I don't know, the first nine verses, that'll do. We'll just read this bit of it. Exodus 25, uh, verses 1 to 9. Um, I'll wait. I might pray while Ken tries to bring that up. If you can, thanks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard from your word, and so we are now going to hear from it again. We acknowledge this as you speaking. You've recorded this passage, and we pray that you would enlighten us. Could you help us to understand it? And having understood it, could you help us to apply it, to live it out, to walk in obedience to your truth? that we might please and honour you. That's our heart's desire, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do we have it, Ken, or you can't get it? I'm going to read Exodus 25. You're all obedient followers of... No, many of you are obedient followers of the Lord Jesus. If you've got your Bible with you, open it. Aha, caught ya. Or your phone or your iPad or whatever it is you got. Well done. Thanks, Ken. This is offerings for the tabernacle. Last week... Pastor Charlie would have spoken to you about a very special service they had on Mount Sinai. How God called the Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel and called them up to a very special meeting. Where there was a Bible reading, where there was some instructions, where there was a worship time, where they ate and drank with. There was a time of communion. Well, this then Moses goes up to the top of the mountain and he waits six days. And it's on the seventh day that God gives him very specific instructions. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, 
ramskins dyed red, and another type of durable leather. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate, breastpiece. Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern that I will show you. Amen. That'll do. We'll conclude the reading there, but I encourage you to go on and this afternoon or later after this service, read through the remaining parts of those chapters and pay very careful attention to the details. Um, <clears throat> so, offering service last, Exodus 24, and now what's a worship service without an offering? And you'll get a chance for an offering a little bit later in this service. And this is God's idea. God, in fact, says it's a great verse, verse 2. Tell the Israelites, it's command. Bring me an offering. And God's actually got a list. He's not just bring me anything you want. He's got a list of 15 items from verses 3 to 7 of specific things that he wants. For the purpose of, he wants to use what the people give so that he can use that in the making and building of the furniture and the tabernacle and the priest's garments and everything else. <clears throat> it's interesting, isn't it? Giving is very important. The verse goes on to say, You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. Command the Israelites to give. Receive the offering from those whose heart prompts them to give. Notice that? God's word, the instruction, do this. The response, heartfelt response. That's how God works in our world. Through his word and your heart responding to what his word tells you. And God chooses through our response to his instruction to achieve his purposes. He still does it even today. It is through his word that God will work in our world. It's through his word that the dead will be raised to life when Jesus comes back at his word. And it's the same today. It's at his word that people are brought from spiritual death to spiritual life through his word and the people responding to it. Giving is a very important part. This is what I, I want to go on to this in terms of um, where we're going. That's what we're looking at today. I can't read that. Good, I'll get to that eventually. Giving is a very important part of the scriptures. You are aware of some televangelists and how they go on about things. They seem to be obsessed with money. They're always asking for it and they're after millions and they want another jet plane or whatever it is they want to buy this time. Others, you might be aware, are embarrassed to talk about it. It's a very private affair. It's between you and God. We shouldn't talk about it from the front. But in fact, it's a very important biblical theme and doctrine. That giving is a, a spiritual principle. In fact, you can monitor your own spiritual health by the way that you are giving. It's really the heart attitude. It's not the amount, it's the attitude. But giving people tend to be growing people. Non-giving people tend to be people who are flatlining spiritually. It seems to go together. It's not just about giving, but it's about giving generously, giving willingly. That's what the Bible teaches for us. And here, there are a couple of truths. Number one, we give to God. Don't give to Moses, you don't give to Aaron, you don't give to the priests, you don't give to the elders. We may mistakenly think we give to the church. In fact, you're giving to God. It's through the church, but that's what you're doing. 
in your offerings, what you decide willingly to give, you're giving to him. He is the one who is to be in focus. We are giving back to God. It's for his glory. In fact, everything we have comes from him, doesn't it? So he can quite easily just take it back anytime he likes. But he chooses to entrust this to us and he invites us into a relationship with him and through our giving to be expressing our appreciation and our adoration of him. Parents do this all the time. Dads give their kids pocket money so they can go and buy a a birthday present or a Christmas present for dad. It's his money. He's enabling it. And the kids are doing it. And when he opens the present, he is surprised to see what his money bought him. But it's not about the giving, is it? It's about the attitude. It's about the relationship. That the father is giving to the child to enable the child to be expressing their affection and their appreciation, their love for their father, for their parent. He is enabling that expression. It's about the relationship. So our Heavenly Father does that with us. He provides for us that therefore enables us to willingly, from the heart, to give to him. It's remarkable that God is willing to receive from us. We often emphasize theologically it's quite correct. God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't. But here, he is inviting us to participate. He is inviting us to contribute. And God is actually receiving what he has enabled us to have. Where did the Israelites... This is not just normal, everyday sorts of goods, are they? These are treasures. These are precious and expensive. Gold, silver, bronze. Okay. No more... Paper notes, thank you, everybody. We'll have gold, silver, that'll do. We don't need bronze, just gold and silver will be fine. If you bring all that you've got of your gold and silver, we won't get much, will we? Come on, wedding rings, take them off. So these are precious, this is made of gold because it's very, very important. We emphasize that. And God is saying, I want your best. Don't forget, where did they get this from? These were slaves. But if you go back to the story of the Exodus, you go back to chapter 11 and chapter 12. In chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, you have God instructing the Israelites just before they leave um, after the Passover. God says to them, the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to us their neighbours for articles of silver and gold. God instructed them, ask your neighbours, for articles of silver and gold. Verse 3 says, chapter 11, The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people. Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh as officials and by all the people. So where do they get it all from? Well, God instructed them. Ask your neighbours before you go. And then over in chapter 12, I think it's verse 36. Yeah. The Lord made the Egyptians favourably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for, so they plundered the Egyptians. Where did they get all this gold and silver and gems and precious linen? Where did they get it from? From the Egyptians. God plundered Egypt. He resourced and enriched his people. And now God is saying to his people... That which I provided for you, now bring me an offering. It's not obligatory. If your heart prompts you to give, come and give. Moses, I want you to receive for me from everyone whose ever heart prompts them to give. We give 
to God. We also give from the heart. Like I said, it's not obligatory. It's not mandatory. It is simply something we do because it's an expression of our love. Heartfelt. Heart prompted. 2 Corinthians 9.7, the New Testament, says exactly the same thing. Each one of you, that's all of us, give what you've decided in your heart to give between you and God. Not reluctantly, not grudgingly, or under compulsion. Why? Because God loves a cheerful, joyful, glad giver. The principles of giving. As I said, he doesn't care about the amount, he cares about the attitude. This is not a tax, this is not something that they must do. Of course, in the future, when they get into the promised land, God will give specific instructions that you must bring the tithe. The tithe is the equivalent of their income tax. And that's how they would sustain the nation when they were in the land. But this is a special project. This is outside all of those dimensions, and it's something they are to do willingly and gladly. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of the week, each one of you set aside a portion of your income that you decide in order to contribute to God's work and cause. That's the principle we follow. And the wiser, sensible way, I think, if you study the Scriptures, the best way to come at that is on a percentage basis. Don't do it on a figure amount, do it on a percentage of your income. And then ask God to bless you so that you can willingly, from your heart, participate and contribute to him and to his work and to his cause. And that God would bless you so that your percentage giving increases as God blesses you, as he enables you. And that'll, of course, vary from person to person. When we give to God, we give him from, the heart, from our heart, and that means we are giving him our best. This is how God works. He gives the instructions and the people respond. Moving on. The tabernacle and the truth of it is, after this offering, God moves into very specific instructions, how to build the ark, the table, the lampstand. Chapter 26, he moves into constructing the actual tent itself, the tabernacle and the surrounding courtyard. Chapter 27, we'll talk about a bronze altar and about some other instructions. Um, Don't lose sight of the big picture as we dive in in a moment into some of these details. The people were living in tents, moving through the desert. At Sinai at the moment, but eventually they would be moving and they're in tents, they're mobile. And God comes to live amongst them in a tent. Don't miss that. God was identifying with, God became like them. Pointing forward, of course, to Jesus who became in flesh, like them. Us. And in fact, John chapter 1 verse 14 says that the word became flesh and quite literally tabernacled among us. Dwelt, <coughs> dwelt among us is what it, how we translate it in English. But the word is tabernacled. Picking up on this whole theme. And there are two aspects to note in verse 8 and verse 9 about this truth that God is with us. It's the words, the names that God gives this special place. In verse 8, he calls it a sanctuary. In verse 9, he calls it a tabernacle. A sanctuary means that it's a holy place, separated. That's God in the community, part of, identifying with, but separate from, separate to. He is holy. He's with us, but he's different to us. And tabernacle, of course, understands it, underlines it's a dwelling place, that God is present, that he's near. 
And it's this combination of this truth, which is still true today, that God is with us, that, and yet he is different to us. He is transcendent and imminent. He is above us, but with us. He is, we have access to him, but not completely approachable in our current state. There are still some things for us to go through. Let's dive in. As a word of explanation, uh, I put aside about 15 pages of notes this morning. I went diving through some commentaries and spent a lot of hours looking at the details. Of what does this mean and what does that mean? And I eventually came to the very frustrating conclusion that there's a lot of very creative imagination amongst commentators. <clears throat> details, details, details. Don't forget the big picture. Focus on the details, but don't lose sight of the big picture. God is in a tent and God is with his people. God came to dwell with them. That's the point. Please notice the details because the passage emphasizes for us that it's planned and designed by God. That it was given to teach something to the people of Israel about him and about their relationship with him. Numerous times in the passages you'll read, Moses, do exactly as I told you. Do exactly as I showed you on the mount. Follow the pattern. And about 50 times between now and the end of Exodus, you'll read that, and Moses did exactly as the Lord commanded him. The problem for us is that with all of the details that we've been given, the Bible doesn't explain the details. So it's not easy to get the right interpretation or the right insight or the right understanding. God uses, and I think intentionally, different metals, different colours, different dimensions. He uses different numbers. But we, can't, we have to be very careful about misinterpreting, misunderstanding. Two different commentators can look at exactly the same thing and come to two completely different understandings. And they're both fully confident they're reading the scriptures right. We just need to be humble. Need to have open hearts. And here are two guiding principles for us. Use the New Testament to unlock the old. If the New Testament refers to any of this, then you can trust it. Read the old through the filter of the new. But secondly, as you're reading the Old Testament, study very carefully the context of how the author is using these words or these pictures or what you think it might be about. I'm going to jump in in a minute and give you a quick flyover. Does the author in any way connect or explain the details of what he's given? They're two guiding principles for us. And of course, we have lots of New Testament uh, pointers indicated. Remember the story of the bronze servant, Numbers chapter 21? The bronze servant points forward to the Lord Jesus, John chapter 3. As the bronze servant was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's a parallel, a type, a picture of the coming Jesus. Manna is a, a type of the Lord Jesus. He's the true bread from heaven, John chapter 6. Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, so he'll be three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. He'll be in big fish. So Jesus will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Luke 24, you have Jesus walking along the road with the two on the way to Emmaus, and he is explaining to them from the Old Testament all the things that pointed to him. Would have been nice to be there on that walk. And Hebrews, of course, picks up on some of this. We'll end up at Hebrews eventually this morning. But it does say specifically, the veil in the middle of the temple that divided the holy place from the most holy place, the veil, is the body of the Lord Jesus, Hebrews 10, verse 20. And of course, that wonderful day, Good Friday, when Jesus died on the cross, the sun went dark, there was an earthquake. What happened to the veil in the temple? It was torn in two, wasn't it? 
from top to bottom. Meaning, that which said you can't come in is now open. The way is open by the death of Jesus. It's picture language. This covenant uh, tabernacle and this instructions in the Old Testament is God using pictures to talk to spiritually spiritual infants that they might have an understanding and a growing appreciation of what God was doing in the world. So we're reading picture language and we need to be careful. But it's rich. And if you would like some borrow some commentaries and to dun, dun, jump, jump in, dive in, whatever it is, then by all means come and see me and we can lend them to you for $20 an hour. <laughs> Tabernacle. Here we go. Bottom line, and I'll do it this morning. In reading the commentaries, I noticed one thing. When you come to the tabernacle, I personally think the tabernacle is pointing forward to Jesus. It's a picture of him. Some commentators say the tabernacle, no, is pointing forward to us. It's about our relationship with God. And so the furniture pieces say something to us about us and how we should behave. So you, you can, it's very easy to flip between one and the other, and we'll do so this morning, I'm sure. But I think that's the ultimate. The tabernacle is pointing forward to Jesus. The tabernacle is an earthly recreation of a spiritual reality. It's what's in heaven. You read Hebrews and you read Revelation, you'll find out there is a temple in heaven, and the Ark of the Covenant is in heaven. And that's where Jesus went to present himself. It's all symbolic language, it's all picture language, but it's so the people would understand. Well, seatbelts on, three quick minutes. Oh. Somebody should train me. I didn't do that, you did that. I want to go to the covers. You control it for me, Ken. I'll just tell you when. All right. As you read through the passage, you'll find that there are four covers over the tabernacle, the inner tent. And the four covers are different. Why are they different? Well, they mean something. The first one, the, the passage goes from the inside out, so let's do the same. I'll go from the inside out, but I think I've written it backwards, haven't I? The inside curtain, if you're on the inside of the tabernacle looking up, you would see blue purple and scarlet. Blue representing of maybe heaven, many say so. Purple representing royalty, scarlet representing the blood of the Lord Jesus. And then that's on the inside. And in various places you'll have cherubim sewn into that. That's a picture of heaven and the Lord Jesus in heaven and the angels surrounding him. Over that is goat's hair and over that was a ram skin and then over that was and unidentified but hard-wearing leather. It goes from sea cows to dugongs to badger skin. We don't know what it was. But it's a, a leather product, which is white over the outside. Now, is that just coverings or is it, again, symbolic? Well, the ram skin, does that remind you of Abraham's ram because it's dyed red? Is that what it's reminding us of? The goat's hair, does that remind us of the scapegoat? The goat was taken into the wilderness on the day of the atonement? Well, there's all these coverings. And some commentators will go through it and come up with those sorts of explanations. Let's go to the entrance. 
Around the tabernacle, there is a tent here. It's divided into two parts, one third and two thirds. And then outside of that, there is a very large curtain, a fence. Here is something called the gate on the outside. It's over 20 cubits wide. It's always open. It's not shut. There are no bars and there's no doors. Whosoever will may come. As you enter, you'll go past the altar, but then the entrance to the um, holy place, to the tabernacle itself, it likewise is completely open all the way with a curtain. That's called the door. The gate, the door, and then in between, separating the two rooms, the veil. Jesus said, I am the gate. Jesus said, I am the door. And the veil which separated the two was the one that was ripped into when he died on the cross. It all points to him preparing the way for his coming, teaching spiritual truth. They're all of the same colour. They're all made of the same material. Interestingly, on the door, there was no cherubim. The cherubim are angels, guardian angels. I'll talk about them in a second. But they are guards you thus far and no further. It was the cherubim that were placed at the edge of the Garden of Eden with flaming swords. Thus far, no further. You can never find access to the tree of life again because of man's sin. You're separated. But there are no cherubim on the gate or on the door. Access is permitted. But to the veil, this cherubim, thus far and no further, until the veil is torn in two. What about the furniture? Well, as you enter the courtyard, you would come to a, a large bronze laver, which is reminding us that before you can get to the God's presence, animal sacrifice. An innocent victim has to die in your place, substitutionary for your sin. When you go inside the inner room, then you will find a table of showbread. We'll talk, we won't have time. A golden lampstand, the altar of incense. Table of showbread, Jesus said, I am the true bread that come down from heaven. The golden lampstand, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The altar of incense, Jesus is the one who was interceding and praying for us. It all points to him. Let's go to the next one. God's plan. I'm going to have to go flat out. God's plan was always, because he started with the plan, it's a very specific plan. There's a dozen references in the scriptures. It's a copy and shadow of that which is in heaven, which is why it's worthy of our time and effort to study and try to understand it. We won't get full understanding, but you'll get glimpses. You'll get some truths that God will open for you, and that's worth praying for. The ultimate truth is this tabernacle reminds us of this wonderful, precious truth that God is with us. As you read through chapter 25, verse 8, God is present in our midst. Verse 22, it's there that I will meet with you. Verse 30, it's the bread of his presence, and it's the light. God's intent has always been to be in relationship with us. We rebelled and walked away. Let's speed through some of these tabernacle furnishings. The Ark of the Covenant, small box made of acacia wood covered with gold inside and out. Some people, I don't think it's true, but some people would say the acacia wood, which is earthly, reminds us of Jesus' humanity. It's covered in gold and that reminds us of his divinity and it's his humanity and his divinity forming one thing. It's creative, it's clever. And it might be true but I'm, I'm doubtful of it. The important thing about the covenant is there is something on it 
and there's something in it, which is true of many of these pieces of the furniture. What is on it? Well, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there is a solid gold lid, and it's called the mercy seat. And made of one piece with that gold piece are two cherubim, two angels with outspread wings. The cherubim are the angels that have wings. We don't know that angels have wings. We know that cherubim have wings. And perhaps seraphs, the seraphim, have wings. But normal, everyday, Joe Blow angels probably don't have wings. Doesn't matter. Another study, another time. The cherubim are not messengers. They don't go somewhere delivering a message for God. They are the guardians of God's throne, Exodus chapter 1. They're always associated with God's presence. They are the four living creatures of Revelation chapter 4. They're the ones with faces and wings. There are two of them over on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Their wings are spread up. Their eyes are face, they're facing each other, but they are looking down. That's either looking down on the mercy seat or above them is an empty space. That's where God would be present. There's no image. There's no symbol of the divine being. He is simply present. And they dare not look up to him. They, in awe and reverence, are looking down. And they are over the mercy seat. What's inside the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant? The two stone tablets, the, the Ten Commandments written on it. When you get to the book of Hebrews, you'll also find there is a golden jar filled with manna and there's Aaron's rod that budded. That must have came in later. But right here, it's just the Ten Commandments. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus. He is the one who fulfills perfectly the Ten Commandments. He never broke them. And yet he is the one that once a year the high priest would go into and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, showing that sacrifice had been given and that God, looking from the top down, sees mercy before he sees the, law of the, the laws of God. That which we broke, covered by mercy and blood. It's a picture of our redemption, of how God has provided for us. Could go on, but I'm not going to. Next. What is it? Table of showbread. There are various names given for it, but ultimately it's, it's all made of gold and again, acacia wood covered with gold. And it's The important thing about the table is not the table, but it's what's on it. What's on it? Twelve cakes, loaves of bread, specially baked. Don't have time to go into the details for you, but it's made of very fine flour, representing probably you know, the sinlessness of Jesus. He's the bread of life. The interesting thing is there are 12 cakes. Why the 12 cakes? Nobody knows. Why do you think there are 12 cakes? 12 tribes of Israel. That's my guess. And many people as well. They're in two stacks, two piles, one above the other, all the same size. You think of a cake, a, a loaf, about 12 inches in diameter and about four inches thick. And there are 12 of them, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. All the same size, no distinction. Whether a big tribe, little tribe, doesn't matter, rich or poor, you're all the same size represented in God's presence. You are just as close to the ark as any other tribe is. It's about equality and about acceptance. But like in Exodus 24, where the elders and Moses and Aaron went up on the mountain, they ate with God and they drank with God. The bread reminds us about it's a fellowship meal communion. It's reminding us of God's responsibility as the host, that he is the one who feeds us and prepares for us. It's worthy of much more slowing down and I don't have time, so let's just go to the next slide. Here are three quick truths. God knows what we need. 
That's what the bread on the table. You see, from our perspective, not from Jesus' perspective, if we look at it from what does it say to us about us, give us this day our daily bread. This is a symbol of our needs are in the presence of God, that he's fully aware of what we need. He knows what we need. We just need to trust him to provide for us. And every week, the bread was eaten by the priest and replaced. It was there perpetually in God's presence. Our needs are ever before him. Next. Our real need, most of all, though, is God. Deuteronomy 8.3 is the verse Jesus quotes in the wilderness to Satan when it's man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word of God. It's not just physical sustenance we need. We need God. We need a relationship with him. And that's what Jesus says in John chapter 6, that he's the true bread from God, from God come down from heaven in order that we could know him. That's our real need. Next. God has provided Jesus for us. The bread reminds us that he feeds us and nourishes us. He sustains us. He's in fellowship and we're in friendship with him. Points to him. For me, it points to him. Next. The golden lampstand, Jesus, the light of the world. The light shines in the darkness. If you study the tabernacle, one commentator, some commentators said it would actually be very, very dark. I didn't read it that way. The way I read it, and you need to be a builder. If Warren was here, I'd be asking him because there's lots of building details. I think it's about a metre, a cubit short, the inner curtain, a cubit short of hitting the ground. So light would have come underneath. The three layers of the curtain, which were two cubits or more cubits longer, stretched out and went down at an angle. So there would have been ventilation and there would have been light, some light coming in. It wasn't totally dark, my view. The lampstand reminds us the light shines in the darkness. And just like if you see a light on at home, what does it mean? Someone's at home. God's at home, waiting for us. Next. Oh, you've got to get this. When I read that, I just about did me in. And I didn't discover it until later in the week. I'll just say it to you. Uh, read Hebrews chapter 9, the first five verses. He talks about all of those things, the lampstand, the table. He talks about the holy place, the incense and everything else. Verse 5, above the ark with the cherubim of glory overshadowing the altar, the atonement cover. Chapter 5, verse 5, B, the author of Hebrews, inspired word of God. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Did you hear that? He lists all of the things I've just been talking about. And then he says, but we cannot discuss these things in detail now. And he never does. In other words, these things have meaning that the author of Hebrews knew about and that we don't. God hasn't been pleased to reveal it to us or to give it to us. Chapter 27 goes on to the bronze altar, the courtyard and the entrance. Conclusion. And I'm over time. If you know Jesus, and most of you do, then from this passage, let me remind you to give to God, not only your best, but from your heart. Listen to his word and respond to it. Always take that away with you today. Number two, for all of us, we need to read God's word and we need to read it carefully. Noting the details, and we need to be asking the Holy Spirit to enlighten us, to open our eyes. Lord, help me to understand what you're saying here. You've got to give it time, and you've got to put time into it. Number three, 
for all of us. The tabernacle, this chapter reminds us that God wants, God desires, God wills to be with us, to dwell with us, to be with us, to be in relationship with us. He wants to be close to us, to you. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, the Apostle Paul is praying, and his prayer is that Jesus Christ might dwell in your hearts. And the word he has for dwell in your hearts is the word that is to be understood as that Jesus might be sitting in the lounge chair in your lounge room, relaxed and comfortable in your hearts. Jesus at home in you. That close, that intimate. That's what the picture is of. And finally, number four, God knows you knows all about you and he knows exactly what you need. And most of all, your real need is him, to know him. And so God has provided Jesus. And the Father has asked the Son, given him the responsibility, please make the introductions. Introduce these people to me. I want to know them. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending Jesus. Thank you for coming and dwelling amongst us in human flesh. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for living a life of complete obedience to the law, of fulfilling all of the biblical types, your death and your resurrection, your ascension and entrance on high, and even now your intercession for us. Lord, open our eyes in reading your word to know you more, to be closer to you. I pray that you might grant that blessing to each and every one of us here today. Make us hunger and thirst for you, because you're the one we need. We ask, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.